You are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Our text from today is from 2 Samuel 22, and we'll read verse 1 and then down to verse 50 and 51. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Then verse 50. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, well, good morning, church. It's good to see you. Um, Thank you, Cody and Mark and everybody up here for leading us. um, Just love it. It's great. Thank you for using your gifts to serve our body. Happy Veterans Day weekend to you guys that are girls that are veterans in the room. Um, do we have any veterans here? Can veterans stand up? We have any veterans here? Connor, are you the only one? Let's, let's thank Connor. Yes. Yes. Um, man, so thankful. Christine's uncle, who is a grandfather to my children, served for 30 years uh, in the Army National Guard as a colonel and... Um, Man, just so thankful for all the men and women who have sacrificed so much to serve us. Thank you, Connor. I know you don't want it, but we're going to thank you anyway. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and it's kind of fitting um, that it's Veterans Day weekend, given the subject matter of our text for this morning. Because um, the role of our military, in a lot of ways, is to defend and deliver. Right? I mean, they're defending the rights, uh, the freedoms of certain countries, while at the same time, sometimes they're tasked to deliver other places or people groups from oppression or from other bodies or entities that are pushing down upon them. Deliverance is a key piece in what our armed services have been tasked to do. And it seems like all great stories, whether books or movies, whether you watch or you read, whatever it is, um, have some aspect of deliverance embedded into the heart of that tale. When you think about... uh, a good one in light of Veterans Day, you know, Saving Private Ryan. If you've seen Saving Private Ryan, the whole premise of the movie is Private Ryan, played by Matt Damon, has three brothers that are all killed in battle. And so to preserve the family line of Ryan, uh, they go to seek out Private Ryan to deliver him out of combat and put him back into the arms of his family, bring him safely home. You think about... uh, you know, my favorite, the Rebellion, alongside the Jedi Knights, are on a quest to uh, deliver the galaxy from the throes of the evil empire, evil Emperor Palpatine and his terrifying second-in-command, Darth Vader. They're seeking to deliver a galaxy from oppression, this evil empire. Or maybe you're in the camp of The Notebook, where, you know, Noah Calhoun tries to rescue the love of his life, Allie, from the grips of her aristocratic, oppressive parents, um, to rescue her, to deliver her so that they can experience love with one another um, and run away together. I've never seen it. Uh, Actually, I think I have with Christine a long time ago. It's like her favorite movie. She knows everything about it. So, But whatever, pick your story. And I would put great confidence that some aspect of the plot involves some measure of deliverance. 
you know, a person or a group of people stuck in some, some situation they have no way out of. And they call out for help. You know, help us, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're our only hope, right? And a rescuer, a deliverer, is sent to rescue the oppressed and hopeless and bring them into a sense of true freedom and true rest. And it sounds familiar to all of us, whether we've seen those stories or not, or read those stories or not, because all these stories are imprints of the greatest story ever told in the scriptures. Everyone feels the need to be rescued, to be set free, to be delivered. That's why some of these deliverance stories are so popular, because in our heart of hearts, made up in the very fabric of who we are as human beings, is this deep yearning in our souls that something is wrong that we're being held captive, that we're oppressed, that we're beat down, that we're stuck in something that we can't quite put our fingers on, but something's off. And these stories of deliverance speak to a need that we ourselves feel as human beings in the very fiber of what makes us a human being to begin with. And David pins this song in 2 Samuel chapter 22 as his own testimony of deliverance. Now we've been in... First and Second Samuel for the better part of a year now. And we've seen back in chapter 16 of First Samuel when we're first introduced to David that he's a shepherd, the youngest of eight sons of his father Jesse. And little did he know and little did we know just how often David would be delivered by God in seemingly hopeless situations. I mean, lions and bears in the field seeking to harm the sheep and to bring him harm. Goliath, King Saul his own people that were following after King Saul, seeking his harm, Ishbosheth, Abner, the Philistines, and he was delivered from God's own wrath when Uzzah touched the ark, Ammon, Syria, the consequences of his own sin against God, he's been delivered from that in a way. Absalom, Sheba, delivered, 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 delivered. I mean, all we've studied the last year is our stories of deliverance. Over and over again, the Lord had delivered David from his enemies and even from his, himself, his own desires. And we're not going to spend most of our time this morning unpacking 2 Samuel 22 and 23. And the biggest reason for that is because 2 Samuel 22 is almost verbatim Psalm 18. And I preached Psalm 18 back in May. And so if you want to hear a psalm, a sermon on Psalm 18 slash 2 Samuel 22, you can go back to the end of May and hear that. But what I do want to do this morning is hone in on the one key difference between Psalm 18 and 2 Samuel 22, and it's right there in verse 51. So I want you to look at it with me. This verse is not in Psalm 18. It's added here to the end of 2 Samuel 22. We just read it. Let's read it again. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Now, the addition of this verse, as I said before, is the only difference between Psalm 18 and 2 Samuel 22, this one verse. You know, David's confidence and joy in the past, present, and future, his confidence to be delivered, was rooted in divine promise was rooted in the promises of God. So I want to do a review real quick. Uh, if you remember 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we, we studied it a little while ago, but it's worth revisiting because it's so pivotal in the narrative of the scriptures and the accomplishment of our own salvation in Christ Jesus. 
know, if you want to know the Bible more and kind of what are those key places in the scriptures to just kind of tuck away in your mind and your heart, 2 Samuel chapter 7 is probably in the top three. It's the hint, a hinge text in the scriptures. And what I mean by that is everything before and everything after need to be read in light of 2 Samuel chapter 7 and the promises of 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's that important. But do you remember the promises of God to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7? You know, David desires to build a temple for the Lord, right? He desires to build this house for God. But instead, God tells David that he is actually going to build David and his family a house, a dynasty, an eternal rule, an eternal reign through David's family. It's worth reading again. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn back a few pages to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I want to begin reading in verse 8, 2 Samuel 7, verse 8. And if you don't have a Bible, it's a good reminder to ask you to bring a Bible with you. You know, we open up God's Word every single week, and it's just a good habit to come into the room with a Bible, whether it be electronic or paper, prefer paper, but I'm old. Um, so, but whatever you want, it's the word of the Lord. So bring it with you. I encourage you to bring it each week as we dive into God's word. But 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 8, I want you to follow along with me as I read this. <clears throat> I'm reading from the ESV. It says this, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I'll make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I'll appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, when you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up for your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And then verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So just a quick run through of these promises we just read. Just in summary, a great name, verse 9. A place for God's people to be safe, verse 10. Rest from enemies, verse 11. A dynasty for David, verses 11 through 13. Someone to rule on the throne of David from his family forever, verse 13. Intimacy, this father-son relationship, verse 14. Steadfast love, covenant love, verse 15. A future, verse 16. I mean, promise after promise after promise. And undergirding all these promises in these verses here in 2 Samuel is the hope of deliverance. I mean, how many of these promises, in order for them to be fulfilled, David has to be delivered from something? I mean, deliverance from enemies, deliverance from fear of the future, Deliverance from relational distance and coldness. Deliverance from loss. You know, the reason David can pen the words of 2 Samuel 22 slash Psalm 18 is because he believes the promises of God undergirding his past, present, and future experiences of deliverance. God's word to him is greater than any threat to him. 
And all the great acts of deliverance, we're breaking this up into kind of four chapters, if you want to call it that. All the great acts of deliverance begin with the need to be delivered. There's a need. It's a recognition that they're in trouble, that there needs to be somebody to come and rescue them. You know, whatever story you're reading or watching contains a person or people needing to be set free from something they can't get free from themselves. You know, David talks about this all throughout chapter 22, if you want to flip back to 22, verses 5 through 7. He says, for the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. I mean, how many more times can you say, I need help, I'm in trouble, I'm drowning here, I got no hope here, I'm surrounded, I'm being brought down, I need help. And then verse seven, he says, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. And we've studied those times of need in David's life. We just recounted a lot of them at the beginning of the sermon. And we've seen his need to be delivered from his numerous enemies all throughout this past year. But all these external acts of deliverance are shadows of just the greatest need that David has and that we have. And that's that our need is to be delivered from our captivity to sin and death. David's story and our stories are a a microcosm of the greatest need shared by humanity to this very day since Genesis chapter 3. And that's that all of us in this room need to be delivered. And the starting point of salvation, if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, the starting point of your salvation experience was admitting need. Right? Following Jesus begins by coming to Christ and saying, I can't do this. I need you. I need you to save me. I can't save myself. Admitting something in us is very deeply flawed and and broken and dead and that we cannot fix it ourselves. And it's been that way since Genesis chapter 3 when our first parents, Adam and Eve, took that fruit from the tree in that first act of rebellion and brought death into this world. None of us are born Free from sin. And what I mean by that is all of us are now born into this world with a sin nature from birth. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. We're not going to read it. It's good to write it down. Romans 5, 12 to 21. From birth, we desire things contrary to what God desires. You know, we tend to be self-centered, self-infatuated. We, can, we tend to have our eyes on ourselves rather than fixated up on Christ. That's our disposition from birth. It's a result of the fall. You know, I don't have to, I don't have to convince, if you're a parent in this room, I don't have to convince you that you see, that, that this is true. You see it in your kids all the time, right? From the earliest of ages, you see it as soon as your kids are old enough to move their mouths or their arms and make noises, which is birth, right? They start making demands on us at birth. You know, my favorite word in my house right now is among my kids is mine, that's mine. You know, the, the problem is we tend to keep that as our favorite word. We just become a little more sophisticated in how we say it as we grow. It's mine. But these acts of the self are, are indicative of something more, more sinister. And that sinister undergirding is that we are born enemies of God. 
We are not born children of God. Adoption is the fruit of the gospel. We're adopted as children of God. When we put our faith in Jesus, we're not born children of God. We're born enemies of God. Prisoners, captives in another kingdom. We have no hope. We'll only experience lifelessness and death. And we cannot free ourselves from our captivity, the captivity we find ourselves in. But we need another outside of us to come and rescue us, to deliver us. And realizing and admitting this need is the starting point of salvation. Starting point. Which leads to the second thing. In Christ, we have been delivered. We've been delivered. God rescues us. You know, if you're a Christian in the room, you've been set free from sin and death. To use the language of Romans 8.1, you've been transferred, uh, to, to use the language of 8.1, but to use the language of, I can't even talk, Colossians 2, to use the language of Colossians 2, you've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom there is forgiveness, the redemption of sins. You see it with the language of deliverance from David in 2 Samuel 22. Verses 8 to 16, you know, David describes the anger and the fierceness of God's disposition when he hears that his people are in need and in distress. And then in verses 17 and 18, read it with me, chapter 22, he says, He sent from on high and he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. David understands the strength of his enemy. He admits that they were strong, they were too mighty for him, that he could not overcome them in his own strength. So his rescue had to come from without, couldn't come from within. And he rejoices in the deliverance from his enemy by the Lord, who in verse 20 delighted in him. You know, if we... um, if we zoom out a little bit from ourselves, again, to the big picture, the meta-narrative of the scriptures, the Bible, we see the Lord delivering on a variety of scales. I mean, six, seven chapters into the scriptures, we see him delivering people from floods, right? The story of Noah. You read on, you see God delivering his people from the worship of false gods, from idolatry that they had fallen into. You see him rescuing and delivering his people from physical sickness and death. You see him rescuing people from famine. You see him rescuing people, his people from nations seeking to destroy them. But there are two great acts of deliverance in the Old Testament that are concrete foundations for the coming of Christ. Two great acts of deliverance. The exodus and the exile. The exodus and the exile. You know, most of us know the story of the exodus. Israel had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years put to hard work building an empire for this polytheistic Egyptian dynasty they found themselves in. And then Moses shows up, this Israelite who was raised in the courts of Pharaoh, kind of this hybrid world that made him a perfect person to deliver the people of God. And he's sent by God to deliver his people out of slavery into the promised land. And God acts God uses plagues and he uses the parting of the Red Sea, these these mighty acts of God, and and he destroys the wicked armies of the Egyptians and he sets his people free to enter into the land of promise. 
that he had set aside for them in Canaan. But that act of physical deliverance did not solve their internal sin slavery issue. I mean, how quickly they turned back to Egypt, to wanting the food, to wanting the comfort, to wanting the pleasures of their slavery. And they fall back into patterns that had marked them for the last 400 years. And then for the next 1,000 years after that, they repeatedly rebel against the God who had set them free from Egypt over and over again. So finally, God sends them away from their land into captivity again, into exile. Exile at the hand of the Babylonians, but when they come back to Israel, 70-ish years later, Persia rules the world. They're exiled from their land. They're exiled from their homes, exiled from what is comfortable and familiar, exiled. You know, I find it interesting. You know, Jeremiah 29, 11, really popular verse. I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans to prosper you, on and on. We know that verse. It's usually given to us at, like, graduation. Um, those promises were given to a people in exile. God is promising his people, hey, you're going to be here for 70 years but I know the plans I have for you. You may not experience those plans. You may die in this slavery and exile, but your kids will. Grandkids will. You know, those verses aren't given to us to like give us confidence that the college we chose is great. It's given to us to sustain us in the midst of exile. But it was while they're there in exile that God performed the second great act of Old Testament deliverance, and that was to rescue them from exile. God raised up a king from Persia named Cyrus. He's not even a God follower, just this pagan king in Persia named Cyrus. And Israel under Cyrus is allowed to go back into their land. And so they go back, but it's just a shadow of what it once was. The temple has already been destroyed. The land is just devastated. And the Israelites, they knew it. They knew there was something, they knew there was something greater coming. This, this, the return from exile here was not the end. There was a greater rescue coming, a greater deliverance, a greater salvation. Read the prophets. So they begin to hope even more in, in a Messiah, in an anointed one, that's what the word means an anointed one, a rescuer, a deliverer who would once again come to deliver them from the hands of their enemies and restore everything they had lost because they had lost a lot. And Jesus came, our great deliverer. But he didn't come with horses and armies. He didn't come into palaces and riches. He didn't come to be waited upon by butlers and servants. He was born in a repurposed cattle trough in a house for animals to two terrified, poor parents. But in the, in the darkness of that night that Jesus was born, what Mary and Joseph clung to, that baby, as they held that baby in their arms, the stillness of that moment, what Mary and Joseph clung to was not, not a new baby boy only. What Mary and Joseph clung to were centuries of promises made by God. They had heard words of hope themselves 
through the prophets, through the history of their people, that one was coming greater than themselves that would rescue them, would set them free. They'd heard from angels themselves, literally, that the one coming to Mary, being born of Mary, was different. He was the deliverer. We're going to see this in Luke chapter 1 when we get in there in a few weeks. We're going to see this entering into our Advent season. They'd heard it with their very ears and seen it with their very eyes. And now it was here. He was here. Their deliverance had come, not deliverance from the enemies of this world, but a greater deliverance from their captivity of their souls. And Christ came to deliver. He came to save. He came to set us free. Not simply to save us from our enemies in this world, but to deliver us from our greater need, from our captivity to ourselves and to sin and to death. We needed life, and he did that. He gave us life. It was life incarnate. And we, by grace through faith in Christ, we have been delivered. We have been delivered. If you're in Jesus Christ, you have been delivered. But at the same time, if you're in Christ, you are also being delivered. Also being delivered. Yes, we've been delivered by God's grace from the penalty of sin and death. And we are in the process, this unfolding of being delivered from the power of sin and death. And that's a theological word. I was talking to the, the, the youths, uh, the students upstairs um, before this about this word called sanctification. It's a good theological word. Sanctification in the Bible, it's a good word to hold on to. I encourage you to to memorize the definition if you don't know it already, but hold on to the word. It's full of a lot of rich truth and value. But it it basically is used in two ways in the scriptures. In one, it's used to to describe something being set apart for a particular purpose. You're sanctified. You're set apart as God's people for the purpose of his glory, as we're formed more to the image of his son. Things could be sanctified, things in the temple. You set them apart for specific use in the temple, being sanctified, holy use. But then second, it's also used to describe the maturation process of a follower of Jesus. We are being sanctified. We have been sanctified. We're being sanctified as we pursue holiness. We've been made holy, yet as we follow Christ, our lives will become more holy as we pursue holiness. Yes, so it's an already not yet, right? Been sanctified, are being sanctified. Been set apart and currently being set apart even more in my holiness and my conduct. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me so far? Awesome. So we've been delivered from the penalty of sin. And we're being delivered from the power of sin. And we all know this. Listen, we all know this to be true, don't we? This is our experience as believers. We put our faith in the gospel. We believe the gospel. We desire to follow Jesus. We love Jesus. We desire to see him move. We desire to be filled with the spirit. We desire to see Christ save people. We desire all of these things. We want them. And at the same time, we also at times find ourselves desiring other things, right? Things that may be contrary to the person and the ways of Christ. You know, our affections for Christ tend to be polluted by our desires for sin. We're easily sidetracked, easily distracted, consumed with cravings. We know that are wrong, and yet we still, some part of us wants those things. You know, most of the times when I grab coffee or lunch, 
filled phone calls with, with all of you. Uh, and if we haven't done that, I'd love to do it. So please let me know when you want to get coffee. Um, I drink a lot of coffee. It has no effect on me, all right? So I can drink it before bed. I'm totally fine. So if you want to get coffee at 9 p.m. at night, if you can find a coffee shop open that late that's not Waffle House, let's do it. It won't affect me at all. It may affect you. But when I have those conversations with you, I find, we find ourselves, you and I find ourselves talking about struggles we continue to have, right? These doubts that continue to arise. These pleasures that continue to be contrary to Christ that we continue to pursue. The, pursue the alarms we continue to snooze, right? That's what our conversations are full of. Well, how can that be? Why is that? Following Jesus, well, why are these warring, conflicting desires inside of us? It's because in this life, we still have remnants of the old person. It's like grave clothes that are still hanging on us, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Yeah, that, that is true, but sometimes the old seems to be a slower departure than what we like, Right? And we feel this, do we not? You feel it inside of yourself when you're faced with temptation. You feel the war. You feel the battle. You feel the conflicting desires. I know I do. You know, for me, it feels like a, like a pit in my stomach or like literally like, like I, my heart's going this way, my mind's going, it's like I'm just separating myself, right? I mean, we feel it, all of us do. Feel it to be true. You know, Paul talks about this in Romans 7. That's something we're very familiar with. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not want what I want. Or for I do, for I do what I, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I desire, I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. For I delight in the law of God. I delight it in my inner being. I delight in it. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, in my body. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? We get that. At least I do. But do you hear the struggle? Do you hear the tension? Do you hear it? You feel it yourself in those moments of trial and temptation. You feel it. But where Paul's hope, but where's Paul's hope in his question? Where, at verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Well, his hope is in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The story of the gospel is that we have been delivered by Christ, yes, but it's also the story that Jesus is not done with us yet. But he continues to deliver us more and more from ourselves, from our old natures, and gives us greater and greater desires for his glory in this world. So take heart, Christian. If you're a Christ follower in this room, take heart, because if you find your, inside of yourself a war of desires, a war of affections, praise God, you're at war. Because being at war implies you have new desires right? A new heart, new affections. If you weren't at war at all, if you had no issue at all, you're probably still dead in your sin. Praise God for the war, for the battle. 
and in the battle, put your hope in Christ. When you fail, put your hope in Christ because you got nowhere else to go. Nowhere else. If you weren't conflicted at all, church, if you weren't conflicted at all, let's have a conversation because there may be bigger issues at stake. Take heart, take heart, Christian, for Christ will come to your aid. And then the hope for all of us, we've been delivered, we're being delivered, and when Christ returns again, we will finally and fully be delivered. We will be delivered. We have been, we are, we will be. Justification, good word. Sanctification, glorification. Beginning, middle, end. God has committed himself to all of it for our sake. Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you, Christian, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God never starts anything he doesn't intend to finish. He'll finish it in you if it started in you. God will carry you through. He'll bring you through whatever situation you find, in, find yourself in this morning. You know, failure may categorize much of your life this morning. Fear may be a constant companion of yours. Your heart may be in a dull place this morning, not full of really anything at all, except just maybe stillness. Your affections for Christ may feel foreign or distant or cold. I don't know where each of you are this morning. I know where some of you are. I don't know where all of you are. But I want to remind you that your confidence and hope is never intended to be placed upon your own performance for Christ. I'm going to say that again. Your confidence and hope, your assurance is never intended to be valued and gauged on your own performance for Jesus. Why? Because we are up and down and up and down and all around. It's like a schizophrenic person, right? We're just like, what is going on? If we try to find assurance in our own selves, we would never find assurance. Ever. Right? Now, what we need, what we need it's assurance that comes from outside of ourselves. An objective assurance that never changes, that never fades, that never comes up short. And it's the objective assurance that gives us steadfast and steady hope, an anchor that David finds in Psalm, Psalm 18 slash 2 Samuel twenty two fifty one. Great salvation belongs to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Jesus Christ the anointed offspring of David has secured for us the steadfast love of God, the covenant love of God, and that will remain forever and never be broken. That's our objective assurance. Look to him for your confidence, not to yourself. Look to him who is at the right hand of the Father, not to yourself. Look to him who died, resurrected, ascended to the Father, not to yourself. Don't look to yourself you're so subjective and wishy-washy as I am. Look to Christ, the work of Christ who has secured it for you. You know, in the scriptures, when great acts of deliverance occurred, songs were written, deliverance and songs. And the people would sing. Exodus 14, the people walk through Dry ground through the Red Sea. What does Exodus 15 say? They sang the song of Moses. Judges chapter four. 
Israel is delivered from the oppression of the Canaanites. What do they do in Judges chapter 5? They sing the song of Deborah and Barak. David's delivered from Saul and his enemies. And what does he do? He writes a psalm. And he sings songs of deliverance in 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 18. Deliverance and singing have always gone hand in hand. Deliverance produces songs, produces singing. That's why the body of Christ should be the greatest, maybe not the greatest quality-wise, but the loudest singers in this world, right? Because we've been delivered from much by God's grace. We're no longer slaves, church, to sin and death. We're no longer slaves, but we have been delivered so what I want us to do is, is instead, if you're serving communion, you can go ahead and come up. <clears throat> Think about communion in light of what we talked about today. You know, communion is a reminder that we have been delivered, right? We have been set free from sin and death, that Christ has atoned for our sin on the cross and he's resurrected from the dead. And when we look at the juice, representing the shed blood of Christ on the cross, we look at the bread, the representing the broken body of Christ on the cross, that he has delivered us, that he set us free. When we come partake of this meal, we're reminded of the sacrifice of Christ, the cost of our deliverance. Because deliverance always costs something. Something's always paid. But it's also a reminder that we are being delivered, that the mercy and grace of Christ are new for us every single morning, right? Regardless of what your night looked like last night, if you're in Christ Jesus, his mercy and grace are available to you every single morning. But it's also confidence that we will be delivered. You know, Paul talks in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that we take this feast, we come to this table, and we do it every time we gather so that when we gather, we proclaim, we proclaim the coming of Christ, that we will be delivered. Christ is coming back. So as we take communion, I invite you to do that as you feel led. But I also, when you go back to your seat, I want you to sing. Sing a song of your deliverance. I don't care how.